Hi, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, I am overjoyed to bring you special guest Margaret Park, who is an educational leader, diversity, equity, inclusion consultant, facilitator, and mentor to many. Uh, If you are familiar with the wide world of professional development, Margaret Park is a name that has likely come across your feed and with good reason. This conversation is one to be sure to make some time for if you've been thinking about what it is that we can do to have more accountable breakout rooms, Q&A sessions, panels. Margaret and I get into that towards the end of this episode. And I know, listeners, some of you have reached out to me because that is something that comes up often in our strives towards learning more about DEI. Many folks have shared with me some of the harmful things that have happened in those breakout spaces, in those so-called safe spaces. So Margaret has great advice for you to check out. Before we dig into this week's conversation, I do have a few announcements. For those of you who might be considering a career change, a new pathway, please know that the Commission on International Education at the New England Association of Schools and Colleges, known as NEASC, they are very excited to announce that they are actively looking to fill several new positions, including an international accreditation leader. This is a contracted position that will help support schools using the Collaborative Learning Protocol, the CLP, a unified accreditation protocol developed in partnership with the International Baccalaureate. NIASC anticipates continued interest and expansion of the CLP among NIASC schools worldwide. They're searching for an outstanding professional to support this growth. The ideal candidate will have significant leadership experience in an IB school, school consulting or coaching experience, workshop training experience, a passion for student-centered education, and experience using the NIASC ACE Learning Protocol and or aligning to its transformational philosophy. At NIASC, you would join a dedicated group of global professionals and over 1,000 committed volunteers, folks who are committed to supporting students around the world by helping schools create high-quality educational experiences and sustainable improvement and growth. The schools NIASC serves represents many different communities, languages, and perspectives, and at the core of their work is a deep respect for the unique culture of each. They believe a sense of belonging is foundational for effective learning and thus encourage individuals from varied backgrounds who embrace diversity to apply. If you or someone you know are interested in joining the NIASC team, please find more details on their website. That's www neasc.org forward slash careers, or you can head on over to the show notes. Those of you who follow me on social media or who listened to last week's episode, you know that I have co-created a brand new course on the intersection of generative AI and equity through shifting schools. As a sincere thank you for you being a listener of this show You can take $25 off that course with the special discount code BABA25. That's B-A-B-A-25 that you would enter on checkout. You can also find that code as well as the link to the course over there in the show notes. As I've mentioned before, there is a donation going to the amazing work that the Mozilla Internet Safety Fund does uh, using the discount code 
does not avoid that donation. We will still be making a donation to the Mozilla Internet Safety Fund with every purchase of that course. All right, folks, thanks for listening to those announcements. Now, on with the show. Um, Margaret, in your conversation from ECIS, which listeners, I will make sure that I include that link in the show notes, you talk about the importance of looking for a mentor, the struggle of not being able to find one in the world of international education, with the many, many ways that you have led, no doubt there are educators who see your work as exemplary, who see you either as a direct mentor or an indirect mentor, like someone they kind of watch and listen to from afar. And again, you're almost like that guiding light. Um, for those who might be listening and they are saying, yes, Trisha, Margaret Park is like an indirect mentor of mine. What is a lesson in leadership that you have learned that you would like to share or perhaps you would like to be asked about a little more often? Thanks for those questions, Trisha, and thank you for creating this space. Um, you know, a lesson that I've learned um, and continue to learn is the importance and necessity of being intentional about creating space for others and centering others. Um, in the work that I do, I have the privilege of talking to a variety of leadership teams inside and outside of education. And I've noticed that, you know, when one is in a position of power, um, I found that, um, most times, um, it's challenging to recognize that privilege and power that one has, and it's it's also challenging to give up that power, especially if you're not used to doing that. And so I would say if you are in a position of leadership, it's really important to do that deep critical reflection constantly and making sure that you're intentional about thinking about how am I using my privilege and power to lift others up? Um, to create just systems, that, that's, that's the privilege of having that power. But again, decentering yourself. Let's center those in marginalized communities, marginalized identities. Um, and again, I get, that takes a lot of work. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, I, I'm still on my learning journey. I'm, I'm sure you are as well. Um, but the, the point is we're doing this in community together and we're intentional about that. Um, I've also um, learned that if, if you're in leadership, it is so important to mentor and sponsor somebody. Um, you referenced it in the question. I found myself in spaces where I found it really difficult to find mentors and sponsors uh, from people who look like me. And as I reflected, I, I was thinking how many more other folks are like me where they're just looking for mentors or maybe they don't even know they need one. And so, you know, when I talk about mentoring, I'm talking about someone who you have a relationship with, you're sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, um, you're providing guidance. Um, when I talk about sponsoring, which I think is, is key for career advancement, you're creating a vehicle for someone to advance in their career. So I'll give you an example. Like I had um, a few folks, they, they weren't even direct colleagues, but uh, we did similar work and, and we met um, and they're like, hey, Margaret, like send me a resume. I'm gonna share it with my network and I am going to make the connection. And so um, when I had these connections, these are people I would have never been able to connect on connect with on my own. Had I just cold called them and be like, hey, I'm Margaret, they would probably be like, oh, it's lovely to meet you. But because they don't know me, we wouldn't have had that meeting. But because of this individual, um, I was able to get the meeting. And so that's what I'm talking about, um, being that sponsor, creating those opportunities, networking on someone's behalf. So if you're in a position of leadership, uh, making sure you're intentional about doing that. And if you are not in a, a specific leadership role, um, how can you find those mentors and sponsors? So um, those are a few just nuggets of wisdom I wish I had when I when I was on my journey. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, again, of course, as someone who has been a school leader, you know, your time is not infinite. You don't magically have more hours in the week than anyone else. And, you know, my, my wife is also in school leadership and I can see this where she also needs to, at times, like maintain a boundary around, you know, there's so much emotional labor, as we all know, in education too. And no one is necessarily entitled to your sponsorship, entitled to your mentorship. So do you have any thoughts for folks who are listening and they're thinking, you know, I have wanted to reach out to someone who I see as a potential mentor or sponsor. Um, and I, I kind of feel very strongly like there's a right way and then there's a not so right way to go about doing that. Do you have any thoughts on, again, having been approached, I am guessing, before in a way that you feel like this is respectful um, and being approached in a way that, as I said, like I, I use that word entitled, like nobody is entitled to your wisdom, access to your stories. Um, so could you maybe touch on that a little bit? No, absolutely. I think you bring up a great point on both ends, because I think you're talking about there's tension on both ends as someone who who wants to give time, especially if you're in that leadership position. I think everyone wants to help. But as you mentioned, you know, boundaries are important because, you know, the role requires a lot and there's a lot, a lot of emotional labor. Um, on the other end, you want to be mindful of that. So I think the key is, is what you said is that entitlement piece. I know for me, when folks ask, um, when it's coming from a genuine place of I, I really, I really feel this relationship is valuable. Um, I respect respect you. I, I would hope that we can um, have a relationship and letting the terms be on the person. When when are you available to meet? Um, and if not, that's that's okay. I appreciate your time anyways, but finding a way to make it work. And if the time doesn't work, being okay with, okay, it didn't work, maybe another time. Um, I've had folks ask me, can you connect me with somebody else, which I'm happy to do. Cause I've had to say I'm, at this moment in time, I'm unable to support, but I really appreciated folks who weren't um, entitled to my time. They were very um, gracious. Um, and I think on the flip end, when folks do feel entitled, that's when it, it doesn't feel very good. I don't think any of us out there like it when someone feels entitled to our time that they deserve a, a portion of us when we're giving, we're giving up freely. And so um, that, that's, what I really appreciate that that heart of gratitude and and not without the entitlement but and but working together to find other creative solutions right and you know I think folks are very fortunate because Margaret you're doing so much in terms of lots of professional learning opportunities where I think folks can learn from you again where it's you're already putting out this guidance, the support, sharing this expertise. And one of those opportunities is actually coming up very soon this month, February 14th and 28th. You are facilitating a free book group, which is studying the amazing book, The Wake Up by Michelle Mijong Kim. I had the great, great honor, like my armpits during that call were just so sweaty. Um, uh, you know, in that conversation, she spoke to the very deep importance of community, you know, really focusing on establishing strong relationships that are rooted in understanding. Mm -hmm. And she talked about the many ways, you know, there can be fractures in our communities, even when folks have kind of a common goal and vision. I'm wondering if you might talk about how a book club can be a really important community space where, again, like what Michelle was saying this idea that, you know, we can build relationships. To what extent do you feel like book clubs are an opportunity for that? Yeah, great question. And, and I agree with you. I had the privilege of meeting Michelle Mee Jung Kim too, and my armpits were sweaty as well. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so yeah, book clubs are amazing. I think at all levels, I love book clubs because it doesn't matter what walk of life you are, who you are, um, where you are in your journey. I feel like it's a common space where everyone becomes readers and learners. Um, it also provides a common point of access for discussion. Um, we can learn from each other's stories, perspectives, and wonderings from a, from a common and from common text. So I had a, a great experience when I was in graduate school, I was facilitating a book club and the people that came were from all walks of life. And, and I was thinking, I remember the first, first meeting cause it was, um, I didn't know anyone really coming in. I just like sent out an email and um, people just came and I was like, wow, I would have never met these interesting, amazing people if it weren't for this book club. And the book we were reading, everyone had a different cover and it was just so fascinating. So that alone from, we, we, we had icebreakers and community building planned in, but just by talking about our covers, where we got our books, we started to engage with each other in a way that was so powerful. Um, and I just remember I left that meeting just thinking, oh my goodness, in this short amount of time, strangers came together in this book club. We organically started connecting um, and we started analyzing each other's covers. And then we shared our wonderings and different perspectives about different points of the text. And I just remember, I, I felt like I gained friends. I, I had a, a strong community and we're actually still friends from a book club. And I just thought that was so powerful. And then bringing that over fast forward years later, now to this book club, you know, I feel like um, Michelle's book is incredible. Um, it just talks about how we can make sustainable change and gives practical points. And so I feel like folks who come to this uh, book club, they'll come with a similar goal. Uh, I think all of us are reading this book because we want to make change. Um, but we're going to now connect with other community members across the world um, who we will probably not have the chance to meet in that space if it weren't for this book club. And so I do feel like this will be a space where folks can feel like they belong and we can have these courageous conversations on how to make change in our spaces. Um, so I am looking forward to building community um, in this club. And, you know, part of what you reminded me of is how using a book as a vehicle for professional learning, it almost runs counter to the pace of work in life, at, at, at least how I feel like I'm currently experiencing it, where so much is so fast, you know, we do have tools that can expedite things. And I worry sometimes that we position professional learning as just transactional, right? Even that um, kind of, you know, I think outdated practice of the idea of like objectives for the lesson on the board, like here's what you will get when it's sort of like, hopefully the experience is so much more than what three sentences on a chalkboard could say. And the book forces us to slow down. It forces us to, you know, really sit with some ideas. You know, it, it dawns on me even, uh, the book, The Wake Up, you know, I had so many, uh, I hope this isn't like offensive to the author, like I had so many pages dog-eared because I wanted to go back and reread again. Um, I marked up that book, I had so many notes, and I've returned to it several times, I've recommended it to a bunch of folks, and I think it's, there's something in that reading, revisiting, returning, sharing, and then hearing what others think about it that, you know, it's sort of, it's not this linear process, right? It's recursive almost. Um, so I wonder if there's something in that too. And I, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when you're talking, um, I think 
what I'm hearing is like, you're talking about like humanizing spaces. And I feel like, yeah, we want processes and spaces to be humanizing. We don't want it to be like in a box, like you're saying, like the objectives, that was a really great example. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, the book does that. Um, it, it does slow us down. And she talks a lot about how we can humanize others. And I feel like, um, you know, in, in the settings that we're in, um, harm is done because we are dehumanized. And so um, it just made me think about when I was um, prepping for the facilitation of this book club, I wanted to make sure it was a goal, intentional goal, to make sure it was a humanizing space. What does that mean? And so um, it's it's going to be a little more hands off. It might not be as structured as other book clubs because the whole point is community. Um, and our hope is that the space will feel humanizing for others, whatever that means. And I think part of that is I'm, I'm going to um, get feedback from the from the book club members on how we can continue to make this a humanizing space. And the hope is that folks who attend this book club will then go back into their own spaces and perhaps do their own book clubs um, in the way that they feel is humanizing for others. That sort of is a, a perfect segue to my next question, because I, you know, I sort of believe that a, a book club, yes, of course, on one hand, it's great that you have the wake up as the text because it's a great text. But I also feel like you could have an amazing book and then not necessarily have the intentional or well thought out facilitation. And it doesn't necessarily mean like there's going to be lots of learning that happens. So there's so many different choices with that. Um, and, you know, again, you have so much experience leading learning. Your, your foundation runs deep. You're not new to the game, so to speak. Um, and I wanted to talk about something that you generously shared on your LinkedIn page. Again, I, I'll include the link to it so folks can find it. Um, it's a note about inclusive Q&A sessions. And this is a topic that comes up for me in conversation. I'm finding almost more regularly. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten into this practice. If I'm asked to be on a panel, you know, I will just sort of start saying like, there's certain questions that I don't see as debatable. So if this is the question that, you know, you see coming up, like I'm not interested, I kind of refer to this as bad faith. What about ism? Uh, you know, there are certain rights that I just, I think at this point in time, these are not quote unquote debatables. And, uh, Recently, Ruchika Tolshan has a really great piece that just came out that I will also link to in the show notes. It's called The Harm of Playing Devil's Advocate. So it kind of, um, I, I think also gets into the details. So I noticed that your stance on the inclusive Q&A really helps guide folks to make better, more authentic use of that space without dehumanizing or harming others. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit more about your journey and really co-constructing and, and shaping spaces for questions to be asked for curiosity, of course, to be nurtured. I'm not trying to suggest here, like, you can't ask this question. Um, but we also need to maintain that space as one where folks are accountable to the group. That was yeah. a very, very long question. So thanks for still being here. <laughs> No, thank you. And thank you always for your encouragement. I feel very affirmed in this space. Um, but I really appreciate what you said about creating a more authentic use of space without dehumanizing others. Um, as you mentioned, I do have experience facilitating learning spaces. And I've been in and continue to be in lots of learning spaces. And I've been in the position where I felt affirmed and humanized. But I've also been in the position where I felt not affirmed and dehumanized. And so, um, you know, for me as a facilitator, it's really important for me that I don't unintentionally cause harm to those who've already experienced so much harm. And a part of that is the Q&A session. So if you're a panelist, a speaker, um, 
usually with the work that we do, the panels and speakers are usually someone from a marginalized community. And I really do not want to, again, unintentionally create more harm. Um, and we've all experienced those situations where it's happened. And it's not, it's, it's, it's really difficult actually to, to, to get through, especially if you're in public, just being in public is really challenging, can be. And so, um, I was thinking a lot about um, how to make this space is humanizing. How can we create protocols for inclusive Q&A? Because I didn't want to assume that every single person in the room um, you know, is intentionally trying to harm someone. And so um, what can we do to create these spaces and also model what, what a humanizing conversation can look like? And so I had the privilege of collab collaborating with Dr. Donald Fine, who's a middle school deputy principal at Singapore American School. And he provided so much insight and wisdom. That slide was actually from him, um, and I've been using it since. And um, he also introduced me to Dr. Eve Tucker, who has tweets about how to make question and A experience better in the classroom. And so I, I did a ton of research on this and I was like, oh, there's actually very simple processes to make these um, conversations inclusive. And so for example, um, having protocols um and I, I like i like the, the the slide that you're referring to it's funny it's a cartoon so you know people laugh and it, it's lighthearted but it's talking about serious things so it's saying you know before you ask a question is it really a question and then we always talk through what does that mean um and then we have folks peer review so um at a last panel we did we had a q a section we invited the audience into community to have a dialogue with us but we actually gave them 10 to 15 minutes and we set some protocols um please pair up with one or two people and ask these questions before bringing it to the main group and if your group decides all uh, unanimously that this is a question to ask then please ask it if not, we're going to ask that you refrain from asking that. And so it was a really great experience. And we actually received a ton of just really positive feedback from that because it was an exercise that many people in that setting has, have never done. And so it really got them to slow down, really critically think about the impact their words have on the collective or the speakers. Um, and it was it, it was really successful. And so I've just started to do that. And um, again, I, I really want to center um, make space and, and center those in marginalized communities. And so that, that was the impetus for doing this. Um, and it's been successful so far, but I'm always open to learning new ways to do this. So if if you or anyone in the audience has any more um, you know, insight to this, I'm, I'm happy to learn from you. So please contact me and I'm happy to have a conversation. I, you know, I, I love that you brought up protocols because for me I find having that scaffolding is just it's so powerful and I feel like it makes for a much more inclusive conversation and like kind of as a side note with the work that I do with shifting schools we have a whole bunch of free guides that we give away and we do pay attention to like which are more popular like which get more feedback overwhelmingly our collection of protocols is the one and you know I've had responses everything from like this has helped my team have a more equitable conversation. You know, I've had people say like, I couldn't get a word in, um, you know, I, I was always being interrupted. And I think just providing a little bit more structure for what we're talking about, like I, you know, that idea of like, you know, tell me what you think is not really helpful. It really is sort of like, well, about, you know, what, especially when we are talking about deeply personal concepts, um, you know, concepts that for some might be challenging. Uh, I, I really do find that can 
that can support. So folks, check out the the slide that we are talking about. I think, uh, again, the more resources that we can explore, the better. I think it's a really important repertoire to continue to develop and cultivate and just think, um, how can we continue to sort of build on that as, as practice and, and really think about, yes, if you're going to have small group discussion or breakout rooms or Q&A, um, what are we doing to really, I don't know that I believe there is such a thing as a safe space. So I think, you know, almost designing for, we can't ensure safety. So what can we do? What What is the best that maybe we can come up with? And, you know, Margaret, I just want to push back on one thing that you said, you know, you mentioned, we've all had experiences like this. And the reality is like, actually, there are quite a few people who I think you know, have not been challenged when they are maybe leading PL or they're on a panel and for whom maybe they are completely, you know, they don't understand what that experience is like to have their very identity question, to have their, you know, lived experiences sort of doubted or, you know, well, that never happened to me ism kind of a thing. Um, and so I, I think it's, it, you know, it, it's just something that we need to be talking about a little more often, again, given the, the current demographics of who gets to lead schools. You know, I even sometimes question when we use that catchphrase of get outside of your comfort zone, whose comfort zone are we thinking about? Because some folks are already out there, right? Right, right. No, you bring up really good point. And I think, you know, when you're talking, I was just thinking about, you know, going back to who holds the power and, and has the privilege. So if you're in a leadership position, in your school or even in the classroom as a teacher, right? You have a lot of power there. And so how can you co-create these spaces so they're inclusive? And I found it very powerful to do that together, like in a classroom setting um, with your students, create this together. How can we as a community do this together? Um, I, I facilitate learning spaces that are virtual and like worldwide. So, you know, I, I don't have uh, the luxury of time to, you know, spend to do this together, but that would be ideal. And so if, if, if you can, I think ideally is really getting together and, and really talking about this because I think that time you put in, it is an investment. It's, it's absolutely necessary because I've been in too many spaces and I've had, um, facilitated space in myself where I didn't spend enough time doing this. And that is when someone was harmed or someone felt like um, they were dehumanized by someone else's comments or um, actions. And um, I've learned now it, it, it absolutely pays off. It's absolutely necessary to spend time with protocols, um, making sure that they're, everyone understands them. And then also the challenging part is holding people accountable in love. Um, when I talk about love, um, I highly recommend reading Bell Hooks all about love because she talks about love in a way that's just so transformative. But I really do feel like we need more love in this community. That means holding each other accountable. Um, and, and these spaces, creating these inclusive spaces, so we have to create these brave spaces where folks can actually call each other in and out. Um, and again, that I, I feel is the responsibility of the leader to create that culture. Yeah, and I, I think it's sort of like go into leadership if you want to do that, because I feel like that is what a leader does, right? It's not, um, I had a guest on last week, Dr. Gina Cox, who was talking about how, you know, sometimes it's almost like DEI gets outsourced for the leader. You know, they create another position to assist, which there's not necessarily something wrong about bringing in more support and assistance, but she talks about how DEI is not separate from leadership. 
it is leadership. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I'm thinking too, you know, with our protocols, designing them in a way where they also value listening, like something that I've been trying to do a little bit more with protocols is also including an option where it really is the, you know, I'm at a point right now where I just sort of need to listen to others because I think sometimes we almost overvalue speaking when there is a place in time. And this is like weird example, but when we had moved from Singapore to one of the Gulf Islands off the West Coast of Canada, it was extremely rural. I had no idea what I was doing with like the pioneer kind of lifestyle. And um, there was a big storm, a few trees came down and someone came to sort of help with that and was asking like questions about what I wanted done with the tree. And I was like, I have, I don't know, like, you know what to do. I don't even know the terms that you're talking about. And in that as kind of a learning experience, it's like, I just need to listen, actually. Like, I'm not going to be able, I'm so new to this. My contribution has to be just to value the expertise of others. And I'm wondering, correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, your background is with primary education. And I feel like that's a space where teachers are so, their craft is so honed in terms of trying to value leadership like I'm, I'm thinking of some of my friends and again i'm married to a primary school educator so i have learned so much from her in terms of how we can make sure that we value that and we rehearse that and don't i feel like especially in western culture the priority is always like speaking and that's not always helpful i don't i don't know yeah, no, I love that you brought that up. It reminds me of a session I recently attended with Sherry Spellick, and um, she did um, an exercise. It was it was it's fascinating to me because what she had us do was there was protocols. All you as if if speaker A just answers these questions, speaker B cannot say anything, just affirming. And so it was it was a longer exercise, but um, you know, just hearing the feedback from folks in the room and just reflecting on that experience, it was very new. It was what you're saying, a very simple exercise is listening, but I don't think we're socialized or conditioned to listen, to really actively listen. Um, and so I, I found that so powerful. I'm actually using that activity now in, in a lot of my sessions. And um, I, I, have a, I, I have a training as a school counselor. And so I was trained to actively listen, but I remember I had the hardest time because I realized through this training that I thought I was listening to others, but really what I was doing was waiting for the other person to finish. So it actually, I was labeled as a good listener. Um, Margaret's a fantastic listener, but I really wasn't listening. And I and it got me to think like, what can I do to hone my active listening, but also do that for those around me? And so it's something that I'm, I'm actually thinking about often. So I'm so glad you brought it up because listening is so important. And I do feel like when you feel listened to, it's so affirming. And we're talking about humanizing spaces. It's it's such a humanizing um, act. Um, and so we all need to be better listeners, um, starting with myself. I appreciate that. And, you know, again, a lot of love for the work that Sherry does. Bending the Arc, her newsletter is like some of my favorite PL. She's so generous with that. Listeners, I think you've heard me talk about that before. I will also include it in the show notes. Sherry's been a guest um, and I had the great honor I think it was a year or two ago of, of co-facilitating a session with her. And, you know, you remind me of how powerful it is too when we co-lead professional development because it offers us that opportunity to see what is this person valuing that it's almost like it's a completely different reflective process that I think we can go through as practitioners because 
whilst it might be super more efficient for me to map everything out, you know, these are the activities and protocols that I have known and loved, or, you know, this is the way that I see the way that this group needs to come together. When you are co-designing that, I think it's, it's such a useful challenge and opportunity to, again, invite and deeply listen. And I, I think too about how schools often will position professional learning as led by one person. And I don't always think that's super useful. Um, yeah, justice work is community work, right? Like we cannot do this without the community. Um, but I really appreciated what you said about like, um, you referenced um, one of your guests who said like leadership is this work, right? Like we, you can't, there's not siloed. Like being a leader means you look at those in marginalized communities and making sure they're comfortable. Um, I, I, I've had pushback on that. Like, why do we only have to, you know, think about the marginalized communities? We should think about everybody. But, um, you know, what folks are not understanding is that margin, when you, when you focus on the needs of marginalized groups, everyone wins. It, it helps everybody. Um, I, I, I can talk about that for a really long time, but um, I do feel like, um, you know, when, when you're in leadership, um, it is your responsibility to do this, to make sure that systems are just, they're working. I, I've worked in, in various school settings. It is so hard for those in marginalized communities to constantly try to fight when they don't have decision-making power. Um, and, you know, I, I just feel like that's why I focus on leadership because as leaders, we need to take that responsibility on. And even doing this podcast, we, we, we talked about a, a few people we admire that we work with. I'm just realizing um, all the more, you know, the folks that do this work, we're all in marginalized communities. And so it would be so amazing if those in the those with privilege and power would be doing this what we're doing now more we can all do this together and and it really does take again that critical self-reflection you have to give up your power decenter yourself create space for others and and, and do this it, it's gonna make the world a better place as cliche as that sounds um and so i'm really hoping to listeners out there um for those who are in positions of privilege and power that you would really take moment to reflect and and how are you going to use your sphere of influence um to, to to make sure that you're dismantling these um, unjust systems but also creating systems that work for everybody yeah i i'm so glad that you brought that up that notion of this work is for everyone you know i it, it's interesting because i i feel like it's even erroneous the way that sometimes identity gets talked about is like identity work is for everyone, you know, and, and sometimes when I'm working with schools, when I'm talking about sexuality, we're talking about heterosexuality as well. And it's been really interesting, the number of, you know, school leaders, folks, even in their fifties and sixties, who have said to me, Trisha, like, I actually never really thought about the messaging around heterosexuality, um, you know, how it's portrayed in the media and how it's often actually portrayed as like heterosexuality is like men and women barely being able to like each other let alone like love and care for each other you know all of the things that are like jokes um there's a wonderful book by dr jane ward called the tragedy of heterosexuality that goes into that and i just i really appreciate you saying that because this work is for everyone and so it is about as you said like leading for everyone so i feel like you know so much of what you shared here really is that call to action if you're in that position of power, who's your power for? Um, and uh, again, that idea of decentering yourself as an act of leadership, 
I really think that we need more stories around how folks are doing that because it's it is so important right and i i feel like there's no more social communal intentionally communal place than a school right this is supposed to be for a group of people not for an isolated few so if we can't get it right in schools i don't know like where can we get it right i, I don't know if that sounds too cynical or not no, absolutely. So I think, you know, it's it's a great way. It's a, it is a call to action for our community of, you know, educators. Like let's work together. Um let's let's make um, you know, systems work for everybody and um we can do it. I I think um a lot, you know, I've had so many conversations where people from all around they just tell me I'm just exhausted or there's I don't know what to do. Um but that's a great place to start. <laughs> So, you know, we have this community and so let's do this work together. Um, and so I, I'm just, a, I feel so privileged to be a part of folks like you, um, Sherry, Darnell, everyone we're mentioning um, that's doing this work together because I've met the most incredible people <laughs> doing this work. Um, and so I, I, I'm just so privileged uh, to be here on this podcast. And, and I do hope that for the listeners out there, that if you are feeling tired or exhausted, please know, um, you know, you do have a community of support. Um, I do recommend ALOC. Um, ALOC is amazing. Um, and um, you have a community there, but there's so many places to find community. So I, I, I just want to emphasize, find your people who will walk through life with you, um, who will live life with you um, professionally and personally. Um, and, and, and let's just, let's do this together. Thank you for that. Great. And I, you know, I am so humbled and honored that you came on the show. And I'm sure all of the folks that you referenced would say the same thing about you. And I feel like full disclosure, my armpits were sweaty when I was talking to my Michelle. They're sweaty again, Margaret. So, I mean, I mean that as a really weird, uncomfortable compliment, but thank you for sharing. <laughs> and uh, folks, again, check out that book club is coming up. It's free. That's super generous. The book is remarkable. It's worth rereading if you've already read it. And I have no doubt you're going to create an amazing space for folks to join. So all of that will be over there in the show notes. Thank you again for giving up your time today, Margaret. Thank you for having me. Take care. Folks, I hope this episode encourages you to go and sign up for that book club. The link will be there in the show notes. And if you happen to be listening to this episode the day that it airs, that's Thursday, February 9th, I also wanted to let you know that our friends over at the Radical Pedagogy Institute have a great opportunity. This is led by Dr. Brandy Wade who is the speaker spotlight, uh, who is also part of the genius behind the amazing community that the Radical Pedagogy Institute is. I am going to include a link to what they have going on tonight. That's at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. It's a virtual PD on queer pedagogy. They do have a new pay what you can option. It's $5 and up. Again, the link to register for that and to learn more about the amazing work that the Radical Pedagogy Institute is doing will be over there in the show notes. Thanks as always for listening. See you again next Thursday.